Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. You are listening to a download from Yale University Press. For more information, go to the website www.yalebooks.com. Welcome to episode 22 of the Yale Press Podcast, the monthly podcast from Yale University Press. My name is Chris Gondak, and in this episode, I'll be speaking with James Boyle about the loss of the public domain to the increasing enclosure of copyright laws. Intellectual property laws apply to all of us. We're all doing things every day that uh, implicate intellectual property rights, um, something that didn't, wasn't the case 50 years ago. And so we should understand this as citizens and as creators and as people who want to be part of a culture, these are rules that actually affect us. They affect the constitution of our culture, and we need to understand them. And Robert Poole, about how the first pictures of Earth from the Apollo project affected both the astronauts and the public. It was almost as if uh, we were back at the moment of creation. Frank Borman had, had thought on the way out, this must be what God sees when he saw the Earth. And suddenly that broadcast really deepened people's understanding of, of what space missions were about. Stay tuned. Back in the 19th century in the American West, range wars were fought by ranchers and farmers, and they were fought over who had the rights to land use. In the 21st century, argues James Boyle in his new book, The Public Domain, Enclosing the Commons of the Mind, the new range wars are taking place online in heated battles over intellectual property and creative freedom. James Boyle, thanks for taking time to talk to the Yale Press podcast today. Thanks for talking to me. Intellectual property law is a notoriously complicated subject, or at least that's the feeling I get when I read newspapers and magazines, that it's something really beyond the concept and the grasp of the average citizen. You are a professor in this area. Is it? I think it isn't. Um, Certainly, there are details that are complex, and in fact, they're much too complex. One of the criticisms I'd make about contemporary copyright law, for example, is that it's been made to resemble the tax code, um, when in fact it's, it, it really shouldn't be. Um, but the basics, the, the underlying essence of intellectual property law is pretty simple. You've got innovation and expression, I think inventions, novels, that we wish to encourage and that we wish to encourage people to distribute. And those things are often uh, take time and effort and ingenuity to create. Um, they require substantial originality, and they're easy to copy. And in some circumstances, a limited set of circumstances, um, in order to give that incentive, in order to protect the person who creates that innovation or that expression, we give them a right to exclude other people, and we call it a copyright or a patent. And that's the essence of the system. Uh, it's really not that hard. I think the press um, has got into the habit of saying, oh, this is an arcane subject, and oh, we can't possibly understand this, and making it sound as though it was sort of high-level calculus. But in fact, I think that's really a mistake, because unfortunately, um, intellectual property laws apply to all of us. We're all doing things every day that uh, implicate intellectual property rights, um, something that didn't, wasn't the case 50 years ago. And so we should understand this as citizens and as creators and as people who want to be part of a culture, these are rules that actually affect us. They affect the constitution of our culture, and we need to understand them. 
So uh, one of the main themes for your book, and perhaps this goes back to the issue of the press, is this issue of property. Um, what is it as opposed to what we think it is? Should we treat intellectual property the same as, say, a piece of land or um, a stock certificate or, or a piece of, I guess, tangible property one can possess? Well, that's the, the one of the hard sort of central theses of my book is that we can't, and that mistake, uh, the conflation of those two is is behind a lot of the errors in intellectual property policy. And there's a fundamental difference between a you know an, uh, an orange or a, a bottle of water, a cup of coffee, a, a house, um, and uh, an MP3 file, uh, an invention, a formulae. Um, one of them, if you have it, I can't have it. Um, our uses are rival. Uh, in the other, we can both have it. Um, the Jefferson quote, which I spend a lot of the uh, book exploring, talks about someone who lights his candle, his taper at mine, and does not darken me. Um, and Jefferson says, ideas spread from man to man, from person to person, across all space, like fire. And it's this quality of intellectual property, that it isn't rival, that you can have it at the same time that I can have it, that makes it different and requires a different set of attitudes and a different set of rules than the ones that we apply when we're talking about houses or oranges or bottles of water. Uh, you mentioned Thomas Jefferson and that answer, and one of the chapters takes a, a, a deep look at what you refer to as the Jefferson warning um, and kind of bookends it nicely with the late entertainer Sonny Bono as perhaps the two extremes of how someone should view digital pro uh, intellectual property. Uh, could you give us a brief sketch of where these two extremes are and so we have a sense of the terms of the debate? Well, I think Jefferson, and actually I think the, the framers of the Constitution in general, saw um, copyright and patent, which are the two rights they were thinking about, as necessary evils, limited monopolies that the government was given the power to hand out um, in order to encourage a certain kind of innovation or uh, expression. And it, the key here is unlimited, because their notion was, particularly coming from the generation and the the, the, the period of thought that they came from, that monopolies were bad. Um, this was sometimes you needed to give them in order to get something going, in order to encourage, to encourage the development of a new trade route, for example, in order to, to, to uh, encourage someone to invest in incredibly uh, high um, capital-intensive uh, enterprise. But you wanted the monopoly to end as soon as possible. And particularly in the case of uh, intellectual work, whether it's inventions or expression, Jefferson was very clear that you wanted to have that right expire as quickly as possible and then have the work enter the public domain where anyone can use it, anyone can add to it, change it, version it, publish it themselves, um, reprint it, and the same with the invention. Anyone can build on it. And so the idea that Jefferson and I would say Madison um, and even uh, in Britain Adam Smith had was that this was a sort of the minimum monopoly necessary in order to encourage uh, creativity. And then I think the flip side of that is that um, intellectual property is property just like property, and that what we want to do is to maximize uh, the strength and length of intellectual property and the assumption that the more rights we have, the more, uh, the more expression, the more innovation we will have, and that this is something that I own absolutely and ideally in perpetuity. And so uh, the, uh, the, the widow of the, of the late Sonny Bono, uh, who's... Uh, whose name was attached to a Copyright Term Extension Act, um, she, she said that uh, she always thought it would be a wonderful idea that if we could try and circumvent the Constitution, which says copyrights could only be for limited times, by having it to be for infinity less a day. Um, and so those are two very different visions. And 
you know, I have to say with great respect that only one of them is consistent with sort of the traditions of the American Constitution, but that's not the most important point. I actually think only one of them in the long run actually works, actually functions, because the more you try and think of what an absolutist uh, copyright or patent system would be, one that really cut off the rights of others, one that kept on extending rights, the more you end up in, in deadlock, you end up in, in, in really a sort of enormous traffic jam of creativity. All the stuff you need to build your next work is locked up from the last set of creators, and you actually end up stifling the thing you're supposed to be encouraging. And that, where I believe, is where the term that, you know, I, I've read in other places that, you know, you'll be able to, you can access Mozart without having to worry about any kind of intellectual property laws, but try getting Mickey Mouse and you are in for a real fight. Exactly. And so, and, um, you know, the, the, the copyright term extension is often linked to Mickey Mouse because of the, um, the movie Steamboat Willie um, was, uh, was heading for the public domain when, when a number of content companies, among them the Walt Disney Company, uh, pushed uh, very, very strongly for term extension. And so that's become sort of the, the emblem here. But, of course, if you look at, um, if you look at Mickey, um, uh, Mickey's image has changed dramatically over time. Uh, the image of Mickey and Steamboat Willie is actually dramatically different than the sort of chubby, androgynous, sexless uh, mouse we have for day. It was a sort of leering, rather uh, rather sort of lustful Fritz Lang type mouse, rather than a, rather than the, the, the happy one we have today. And even if those copyrights expired, the Walt Disney Company would be perfectly fine. They have trademarks over Mickey, over its use. They have copyrights over the movies in which Mickey appeared. Um, the idea that you know suddenly they would find themselves bereft of their central piece of intellectual property is simply false. And I got from the book that maybe started this it, from a philosophical point of view is that uh, currently. And this is an argument that I'm not sure if you make, but I'll put it out there, is that there might be an erasing of people's minds that when you're talking Jefferson and that group, they saw intellectual property very much as a socially created right, that it only existed in society. Whereas I'm getting a sense now maybe it's starting to move over to what people might think is a natural right, because I see this property, I can have it forever. Was that accurate? I think that some people are trying to uh, make that transition. I think that the more you think about it, the more that you realize how that's whether or not that's a good idea it's conceptually impossible because you know, what are you going to do obviously you know as we speak we're using words ideas phrases genres um collect as we write music we're using pieces of musical notes uh, types of composition all of which are drawn from people before us is our claim absolute property starts with me everyone else has no rights I mean, that's kind of nice pull the ladder up underneath us you know say uh, everything i get from the past well i don't have to acknowledge that but from now on it's mine and no one can use it um, how exactly is that going to work is is uh, every single invention going to have a, a stream of royalty payments going to every other prior invention on which it is in any way dependent uh, uh, every uh, piece of literary work uh, acknowledging all of the others and sending streams of micro payments i mean the more you try and conceptualize um, an absolute right a perpetual right the more impossible it seems so even in the the the, the countries which which um, sort of hold the idea of the droit d'auteur, the, the natural rights of the author, you find that these rights are in fact limited in time, that there are exceptions and limitations to them, that there's something vaguely similar to American fair use and so forth. It's not just that um, those are good ideas, though they are, it's that it's almost conceptually impossible to come out with an, an absolutist scheme. Uh, unfortunately, what we're doing right now seems to be sort of tiptoeing towards absolutism in a sort of asymptotic curve where we keep adding more and more and more and more rights. And the question that my book asks is, 
at what point do you actually not only stop encouraging innovation, expression, invention, but actually start deterring it? So you're actually getting less of the thing that you're supposed to be encouraging, and you're actually hurting the next artist, the next scientist, the next photographer, the next musician, the next novelist. And that's the question that I want the book to put on the table. I really do want to get back to that issue, but I'm, and I'm particularly in the, the area of the question of Ray Charles and Kanye West. But um, beyond this expansion, I didn't realize, as, as an aside, I, like many other people, like DVDs. And I'm always very frustrated by the fact that I cannot fast forward through some of the trailers or some of the announcements. And only after reading your book have I come to realize that this is not just an annoyance. This is a little bit of a restriction of my personal rights. Could you talk a little bit about the legal encroachment that that represents? Yeah, I mean, it seems utterly trivial, and in a way it is. But, but the, the little story is kind of, um, is kind of instructive. Um, when uh, the film companies decided to, that they were going to move from uh, VCR, VHS tapes to DVDs, um, they say, okay, we want these DVDs um, not to be easily copied, so we're going to produce a form of encryption. So there's a very light, low-level low form of encryption on them. And all the movie companies got together and agreed on a single standard. And so there's a key which allows you allows the player to basically take this DVD and play it. It has to decrypt it and then play it. Um, so what they did was they formed an association, and the association controls the key. And so if you are a manufacturer of DVD players, Sony or Panasonic or Toshiba or whomever, and you want to make a DVD player, in order to get this key, you have to come to them, and you have to agree to a whole set of things. So they say, we don't want you to be able to fast-forward through the um, through the, these titles or the FBI notice. Rather more importantly, we want you to make your DVDs with region codes so that a DVD from Japan, a DVD player from Japan, cannot play an American movie and vice versa because we want to be able to control our releases and we want to be able to price discriminate, to charge different prices at different places. So, in other words, they force the content company, the, the, excuse me, the hardware companies, if they want to make these DVDs, hey, if you want the code, you've got to agree to make a special DVD player for the UK and a uh, UK and Europe and a special DVD player for the US and so on. And all of those restrictions are basically part of the contract that um, the hardware companies sign in order to get this key. Now, in the old days, you know, a, car, a, a hardware company could have said, well, you know, actually, you know, I think your contract is really annoying, and I think it's going to really annoy consumers, and I'd like to make a DVD player that people can play lots of different kinds of movies from different parts of the world on, and I think consumers will pay for that. I'm not a pirate. I just want to give them that freedom. And I'm going to go out and see if I can reverse engineer what this code is so that I can play, uh, so my DVD player can play your DVDs. Um, and that would have been perfectly legal, just as legal as, you know, the generic um, razor blade company going out and figuring out how to make cheaper uh, replacements for my Gillette Mach 3, the best a man can get razor. Nothing illegal about that, right? We get generic replacements all the time. The thing here is that um, now, because of a new law which was passed, the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, if that company made that new uh, DVD player perfectly legally, figured out themselves how to play it, doing nothing wrong, they're not copying it, they're not making pirate versions, just by the act of selling that DVD player, uh, at least the content companies would say, they are violating the law, they're violating copyright law, and so it's illegal to make a DVD player which will allow you personally to fast forward through those introductory clips. And that's an example of a whole new layer of control of the consumer after they've bought the copyrighted work. 
in the old days, we used to think it was like, well, we want to make sure that they actually buy it as opposed to copying it. That, but once they do, copyright's job is largely over, so long as they don't go out and copy it again, right? But now this is saying, well, no, it's not just enough to buy it. It's not just enough to refrain from copying it. We want you to watch it in a particular way. We really want you to watch our trailers. We really want you to watch this sort of doom-laden FBI notice. That level of control is actually rather intrusive, and it's one that Congress has backed with the force of law. So it really isn't property. I mean, it's more, it's, I mean, it strikes me more that instead of buying a DVD, I've actually paid a lot of money to license the right to see the DVD under their terms. That is exactly the way that they want you to go. And if you look at the software that's on your computer, you'll find that almost none of the software, according to the people who sell it to you, is actually bought. They want to have you believe that you're merely licensing it for certain uses, certain times, and certain places. And at the moment, for many consumers, you know, that doesn't seem like such a big deal right up to the point when, you know, your movies that you've bought on your Google Video player or on the precursor to the Microsoft Zune, the, the, the music that you bought for that, it turns out that the company says, you know what, we're not supporting this anymore. We're not backing this particular digital rights management uh, encrypted material. And so it simply becomes obsolete and suddenly your library disappears because you actually don't have ownership of it, you simply have the right to play it with association with a certain player, which is a proprietary player, which they control. And so you're right, it's really a change of the idea. It's sort of control of the consumer in the aftermarket has become the name of the game because they want basically to to, uh, have what they call payment by the sip rather than the glass. And the, the perfect world here is one in which you have the right to play the song, you know, in one room for one price, you know, and in your car for a little bit more, and in the shower for a little bit more. And that's the world that they'd like to move towards. And I think that's a horrific world for all kinds of reasons, but one of them is that the level of control necessary to achieve that kind of business model is incredibly bad for civil liberties. James Boyle, the author of The Public Domain and Closing the Commons of the Mind, thanks for talking to the Yale Press Podcast today. Thank you very much. James Boyle is William Neal Reynolds Professor of Law at Duke University. The Public Domain, Enclosing the Commons of the Mind, is on sale now at booksellers everywhere. To hear an extended interview with James Boyle, go to www.yalebooks.com podcast. Forty years ago, the Apollo 8 mission took the now-famous Earthrise picture, which was then beamed around the world. In his new book, Earthrise, How Man First Saw the Earth, Robert Poole looks at the astounding effects of the pictures of the Earth and how it transformed thinking about the Earth and its environment in a way that echoed throughout religion, culture, and science. Robert Poole, thanks so much for taking time to talk to Yale University Press today. Uh, Thank you. So it's been 40 years since the Apollo 8 mission took the first really famous photos of the Earth. Was it always a part of the mission's plan to take those photos? It wasn't a very important part of the plan, no. Um, They did have a photographic and and TV operations plan, but it was all focused around taking photographs of the moon and the spacecraft and technical photographs. And right at the end, they had a category of target of opportunity, and they said, yeah, we might get some views of the Earth. But they weren't thinking it was really um, very important. Um, I mean, you have to remember, they already had photographs of the Earth. um, There were plenty of photographs that had been taken from orbit, um, even from uh, 22,000 miles out, geostationary orbit, we'd actually had some color photographs, although they hadn't made a great deal of impact. Uh, and there were also um, photographs that had been taken by Lunar Orbiter, which had been uh, circling the moon a couple of years before, trying to photograph lunar landing sites. And they, they, fit, they flipped the Lunar Orbiter back and took a black and white photo of the Earth rising over the moon. 
And it was kind of interesting because it showed the Earth as a, as a black and white planet, pretty much like the lunar landscape. It could, you could almost have reversed it and said, this is the, the moon rising over a battlefield or a desert on the Earth. But it didn't look like home. And I don't think NASA were ready for the, for the, the tremendous pull, the sense of homesickness and nostalgia um, that the, uh, the astronauts felt. Uh, but there was a director of photography called Dick Underwood who had prepared the astronauts to photograph the Earth. And they had their own sort of private little plan for, for taking photographs at certain moments. But it wasn't part of the official mission plan. Underwood had briefed them. They were going along with it. But it wasn't on the, the list of things they had to do. So what was the effect the first time these men had seen the Earth rise like that? I mean, was, was they automatically, okay, did they hear from Mission Control, now you can take the picture? Or were they a bit taken aback and not sure? I mean, I guess by the old kind of the awe of seeing the Earth that way. Well, even though they'd been prepared in a general way and that they'd said they look forward to seeing the Earth from the moon, the, these Apollo missions were tremendously planned in tremendous detail. And so the astronauts didn't really have any free time for gazing out of the window. And also, when they went to, into orbit, they went into lunar orbit backwards, booster first, so that they could break themselves into orbit. They went three times around the moon. Then they flipped the spacecraft over. So by then, they were pointing forwards. And by then, they'd finished looking at the moon. And on the fourth orbit, orbit they saw the Earth rise. And even though they'd been half prepared for it, it took them by surprise. You can hear the excitement in their words. Wow, look at that. That's pretty. Give me the camera. Give me the color film. Quick. That's great. And the, the commander just has to tell them to calm down. And, and I did actually uh, get a, 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 a letter to, to Frank Borman, the commander, with just one or two short questions. And I said, did it take you by surprise? And, and he wrote back and said, yes, took us by surprise. Too busy on the first three orbits. Frank Borman kind of turned out to be the star of that, of the Apollo 8 mission, once they got back to Earth. Or at least that's how it seemed from your book. Uh, he was the star because he was the, he was the one who was sent out to tour Europe uh, and then further around the world. Um, the other two, James Lovell and, and Bill Anders, and Anders had taken the color Earthrise photo that, that we all know, um, they were busy in training to be, to be backup crews for the later Apollo missions. So Borman, the, the, the commander... Um, you know, and a great American, a great patriot as well, was the one who was, who was released, who decided he wasn't going to do any more missions. And he was the one who, who toured the world, yeah. So was NASA ready for how the photos kind of affected the public imagination? Or were they also caught by surprise by how the public reacted to the photographs? I think NASA were caught completely by surprise. Um, the, uh, the story that Dick Underwood, the, the director of photography, tells about this is that when the first really superb orbital pictures of Earth taken by astronauts came, which was from the, one of the Gemini missions in the middle of 1965, this was the one with the spacewalk where they could take photos you know, out from outside the capsule. Um, all the photos were developed and put on a big table at, at Houston uh, the next day. And all the, the mission planners and the engineers and so on were at one end of the table looking at the photographs of switches and the spacecraft and so on. And Dick Underwood was down looking at the photos of the Earth, and he said to the head of the Apollo program, Mr. Gilruth, come down this end of the table, look at these. And Gilruth came down and said, uh, these are just photos of the Earth. And Underwood said, yes, but look what you can see. You know, look what they're like. And, and Gilruth said, yes, yes, okay, from now on, your job is to take really good photos of the Earth. So Underwood did have backing from some of the top people at NASA to take photographs, but it was a real uphill struggle against the engineers and the mission planners who didn't want to waste time with these touristy photos of the Earth. But they also served a bit of a propaganda thing because wasn't there – I mean, NASA had to make sure that they had funding from Congress, and this should have been a help for them, shouldn't it? It was a tremendous help. NASA didn't realize it at first. NASA always understood very well 
that, um, that, their, that their continuing budget depended on tax and on public support, so they always let people use their photos freely. Uh, but it took a while for them to realize that the photos of the Earth, not just the photos of the Moon, had tremendous value. And for the later Apollo missions, they had a full photographic operations plan, and they planned these things, and they, they planned taking this the most famous photo of the full Earth, the blue marble photo that we all know uh, so well. And, of course, in, in 1990 onwards, NASA were very Earth-orientated, and uh, their, their theme for the 1990s was Mission to Earth. So we began by going from the Earth to the Moon and finished by coming back from the Moon to the Earth. And ever since then, NASA has, has, has uh, got a great deal of benefit from public interest in looking at the Earth. So the book does talk about the history of how uh, these pictures develop, but you take a step behind the facts and begin to look at how it affected the men who went up on these spacewalks. And it seems that going out and seeing the Earth or doing a spacewalk, particularly in the early part of the space program, sometimes had a tremendous effect on the lives of these men. And I wonder if you could talk about the two seemingly opposite kind of life trajectories of these of two astronauts, Russell Schweikert and Harrison Schmidt. Let's start with Schweikert. Who was he and what happened? Well, Russell Schweikert was an astronaut on Apollo 9. That was the mission that followed Apollo 8. And Apollo 9 just went round and round the Earth testing out the lunar module, docking and undocking and so on, doing all the things they'd have to do to land on the moon. And during part of that mission, Schweikert was on a spacewalk and for five minutes, very unusually, he had nothing to do because there was a problem and they had to check with mission control what to do next. And so he had five minutes floating, just looking at the Earth with time to think, which was very unusual for astronauts. And it had an immense effect on him at the time and immediately afterwards. And later on, he wrote this up as a, as a talk and, and then an essay, and it's become quite famous. And, and this is what he says about it. Um, the person next to you goes to the moon. He lived next, all the astronauts live next door to each other. And he tells you he sees the Earth as a small thing with a great contrast between that bright blue and white Christmas tree ornament and the black infinite universe. It's so small and fragile and such a precious little spot you can block it out with your thumb. And you realize that on that small spot, that little blue and white thing is everything that means anything to you. All of history and music and poetry and art and death and birth and love tears, joy, games, all of it on that little spot out there that you can cover with your thumb. And you realize from that perspective that you've changed. And Schweikert, um, he was from California, and a few years later, having thought about this a bit more, he went to a conference um, on planetary consciousness organized by this thing called the Lindisfarne Foundation, which is one of the very early New Age movements. And he spoke to the assembled New Age people about the spiritual impact it had had on him looking at the Earth. And people who were there said the words seemed to tumble out of him, almost as if he didn't know what was happening. And Schweikert became part of the West Coast counterculture. Um, he was a space advocate, but he was an advocate of, of the, the, the human, the spiritual value of looking at the Earth from space uh, as well. And he, he always is, he always was and still is a space advocate. Um, but very much on the New Age kind of side. Harrison Schmidt, however, took a very different life uh, path after his, uh, after his experience in space. Yeah. I mean, Ru Russell Schweikert was a left-field liberal, and he joined Jerry Brown's uh, governorship as an environmental and space advisor and so on. Harrison Schmidt was, was politically the polar opposite. He was a very conservative Republican senator. He, he joined what they call the, the cactus conservatives. He said he was like a, almost in a minority um, of one. And Schmidt, 
was also responsible for uh, a very important Apollo vision. He was the one who took that photo of the, the blue marble, the full Earth, as the last Apollo 17 was leaving the Earth in December 1972. And Schmidt was the geologist astronaut. He was the one who didn't have the right stuff. And there was a huge argument about getting Schmidt onto the last mission. And, and Schweikert may actually have had something to do with that. Um, and Schmidt as a geologist, they called him Dr. Rock. Um, and he was there up on the moon, chipping away at the moon. And uh, Gene Cernan, who, who wrote the book The Last Man on the Moon, says how frustrated he was that he couldn't get Schmidt to look at the Earth as well. But maybe Cernan was a bit hard on Schmidt because, of course, as a geologist, Schmidt knew that you know, maybe they were already on the Earth because he would have been aware of the theory that the moon was, was kind of part of the Earth. He also knew that he had in his can the best photograph of the Earth ever taken, so he was busy getting the evidence. And uh, Harrison Schmidt, like Schweiker, became a space advocate, but for very different reasons. He thought it was all about fulfilling the American dream, going onto the space frontier, onwards and upwards and so on, whereas Schweikert saw it about bringing humanity back to Earth, back to itself. They were both perfectly valid reactions. Both men were, were, were quite profoundly affected, but they, they drew different kinds of lessons from Sticking with the human side for a moment, I thought one of the more interesting parts that you talked about as the space program went forward is that NASA had to start taking into consideration that people that are going up in space were having very powerful reactions to being up in space, which probably weren't part of the initial mission. How did they were how were they able to balance that kind of humanness of people seeing space with what, as you've talked about before, were very, very tight mission statements that things had to happen? Well, it was very difficult. Um, the, I mean, all the, all the Apollo missions were quite dangerous. I think, I think it's only now being realized how, how risky they were, even the last, e, e, even the, even the last ones. Um, but eventually, when they sent up the, um, when they sent up the first um, uh, Skylab, uh, and then the Apollo-Soyuz missions, the astronauts had much more time to look out of the window, and they had bigger windows. And actually, there was a bit of an argument. The mission planners were pushing the astronauts to do technical tasks and checks and bureaucratic stuff all the time. The astronauts just wanted time to look out of these bigger windows. And it, 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 actually, they went on strike for a little while. And the mission planners decided they actually had to back off and give the astronauts some personal time. And that's been in the, the mission plans ever since. Let's go back uh, to the 60s when these pictures were taken. How did the picture affect the Cold War? Did it exacerbate tensions? Did it moderate tensions? What was its effect? Oh, there's no doubt, that I think, that it moderated tensions massively. I mean, the mid-60s were a, a time of, 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 uh, of a relaxing Cold War tensions um, anyway. Uh, but when Borman, Frank Borman, the Apollo 8 commander, went on his tour of Europe, what they all wanted to ask him about was the Earthrise picture and seeing the Earth. Um, Hungary actually brought out a postage stamp to celebrate Apollo 8 and, and, and seeing the Earth before the Americans even brought one out. And after the European tour... Borman was then invited back to see Star City, to see the, the, the cosmonauts' um, base. And on that tour, he made the first really good contact that, that eventually led to the Apollo-Soyuz cooperative project. So from that point of view, um, it did it, it quite literally relax Cold War tensions. And also, rather later in the mid-1980s, um, Russell Schweikert um, was one of those who was instrumental in setting up the Association of Space Explorers, which is an international organization of, of, of Russian and American astronauts and cosmonauts. And they had their first conference in, in 1985, taking our home, the, the planet, um, as its theme. And also, of course, in the United States, 1968 was a very bad year 
um, uh, Bobby Kennedy was assassinated, Martin Luther King was assassinated, everything went bad in, in Vietnam, there were riots and so on. And at the end of a really bad year, suddenly Apollo 8 went round the moon and it showed us the Earth. And on Christmas Eve, you know, the ultimate night before Christmas, they went round the moon and they read from the book of Genesis and sent this message back to all of you on the good Earth. And maybe I'd have to admit 2008 might be a little bit like that as well. We've got the credit crunch. Maybe we'll relax and remember the 40th anniversary of Apollo 8 and have a kind of a Apollo 8 Earth Christmas. So what were some of the theological ramifications of these missions? You mentioned that Genesis was read. Why are there things going on behind the scenes that the, the missions were taking on to a degree a specific Christian point of view as opposed to a more ecumenical point of view? Well, the remarkable thing about this first broadcast from space um, from to the biggest television audience in human history was that the Apollo 8 astronauts were allowed to decide themselves what they were going to say. They just said, say something appropriate. And Frank Borman took advice from um, a publicist whom he knew, um, who in turn took advice from another friend. And the end result was, um, the suggestion was that they should simply read from the book of Genesis, the opening 10 verses of, of the creation story from the Bible. Borman got the suggestion, which had originally been made actually by, by, by the Roman Catholic wife of, of, of a friend of the publicist. Borman thought it was absolutely superb. He told one or two NASA people they were fine about it, but hardly anybody else actually knew what the astronauts were going to say. Um, Borman and Lovell were Episcopalians, that's American Anglicans. Um, Anders was a Roman Catholic. They read from the King James Bible. They took a Gideon Bible with them. So you've got all the major Christian tre uh, uh, trends represented there. And the effect of reading from the book of Genesis took people right back to the basics at the same time as they had on their newspapers, on the breakfast tables that day, photographs of the full earth. Um, that had been transmitted by TV the previous day. So people were thinking about the Earth, and it was almost as if uh, we were back at the moment of creation. Frank Borman had, had thought on the way out, this must be what God sees when he saw the Earth. And suddenly that broadcast really deepened people's understanding of, of what space missions were about. So finally, in the middle of the book are many pictures of the Earth that are talked about in the book. They're all in black and white. Is there a place where people can go, a URL, if they want to see these pictures in color? Yes, um, I, I've made a website um, to, to see some of the pictures in the book in colour and some pictures that there wasn't room for in the book. So if people would like to go to uh, earthrise.org.uk, that's earthrise.org.uk, um, they can see some of these pictures and also read a free bit of the book. Robert Poole, the author of Earthrise, How Man First Saw the Earth. Thanks for talking to Yale University Press today. Thank you. Robert Poole is reader in history at the University of Cumbria. Earthrise, How Man First Saw the Earth, is now available at booksellers everywhere. To hear an extended interview with Robert Poole, go to www.yalebooks.com podcast. It's December in the year 2008, and there are two conflicting pressures at loose in the holiday market. How can I stay liquid, and where can I get the best gifts for everyone on my shopping list? Of course, the simple yet elegant solution is to do all of your shopping at the Yale Press book sale. Just hop on over to YaleBooks.com, click on the sale banner, and be feted everywhere for your good taste and financial savvy. The Yale Press Podcast is a monthly show, and subscribing to the feed couldn't be easier. You can either go to www.yalebooks.com podcast, or go to any podcast aggregator and search for Yale Press Podcast. And for good measure, if you have any comments or questions about the show, we can be reached at yup.email.news at yale.edu.
And that's it for this episode of the Yale Press Podcast. Heather Diori is the executive producer, Stephen Cray is the editor, and my name is Chris Gondak. I'm the producer and host of the show, and I hope you all have the best holiday season ever. See you in 2009. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Yale Press Podcast. The Yale Press Podcast is a production of Heron and Crane. For more information about the show, go to www.yalebooks.com or www.heronandcrane.com. Copyright 2008. Yale University Press. All rights reserved.